My name is Bryce Michael Wood, and this is part eight of For Your Discomfort. Now, For Your Discomfort is a series of much-needed conversations that you can tune into live on Mondays and Fridays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time via Zoom. Now, these conversations are designed to elevate the voices that have routinely been unheard and underrepresented. Now, I did not set out to turn this into a podcast, but due to popular demand and our growing audience and the fact that I got you, I decided to provide the recordings of the audio. For all updates, please follow at For Your Discomfort on Instagram or head to our newly launched website, foryourdiscomfort.com. But in the meantime, white people, step into the room. But welcome, friends. My name is Bryce, full name Bryce Michael Wood. I say my full name every time because those initials are important to me. BMW, if you didn't figure it out, now you know. Um, and I am joined by Chris, Jana, and Victoria for part eight of Four Year Discomfort. I am uh, especially excited today for today's content. Uh, strap up, get ready, step into the room. Now, before we go any further, it's important for me to let everyone know that this started about two weeks ago um, after the, you know, the events of with George Floyd and Amy Cooper. And, uh, you know, I was fed up, fired up. And just because that was two weeks ago does not mean that I've lost any fire, does not mean that the momentum has stopped in any way, shape or form. White people, step into the room. I'm glad you're here. Um, we do not speak for all black people. Jana, Chris, Victoria, myself, we do not represent all black voices in the world. We represent unique experiences and perspectives, but what links us together is the color of our skin in a white world. That is kind of the, the commonality here. For your discomfort is education through observation of conversation. And wait, Jana, I'm literally scrolling to the part that you added. Jana added like, cause so if you've been listening, I've been trying to figure out how to add other observations into like the, you know, the sentence and uh, she figured out a way to add preservation. So I appreciate you, Jana. So let's do like the new, the new sentence. So for your discomfort is education through observation of conversation while fighting for preservation of the black community. I like that, yes. I like that. Come on, she added a whole observation in there and I needed that, <laughs> I needed that. Uh, well, without further ado, um, why don't you guys take the time to introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, Victoria, let's, who, who are you? Tell them who you are, what you do. Hi y'all, my name is Victoria Alexander. I currently work at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Um, I work in their advocacy and diversity department. So I advise our culturally based student organizations, our fraternities and sororities, and I do all um, facilitations and education on race, class, and gender. Um, I know these folks because um, I slid in Bryce's DMs after the first spray <laughs> said, I want to help. Um, and I used to when I was living in California, when I was a master's student at USC, I worked at the downtown LA and Culver City Soul Cycle. Um, so that's how I started following these folks. So happy to be Beautiful. here for inviting me. We happy to have you, Victoria. Chris, tell them who you are. What's up, bro? Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Chris Pitkin. 
Oh, oh, hey, Chris. We are uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Something happened. We love technical. Look, I had technical difficulty yesterday trying to get it. Let's see. Is better? That's way better. Let's go. What's up? I don't know why my AirPods were trashed just right now, but it's cool. <laughs> my name is Chris Pipkin. I'm living out here in Los Angeles. I'm from Philly originally, moved out here six years ago. I am a fitness professional, teach at SoulCycle, senior instructor, and I teach at Box Union. And I am also an actor out here in LA. Um, I met these good people as well. Bryce slid in my DMs. And I <laughs> Normally, you know, you for a little bit, but wrote him back immediately, said I uh, felt honored, would love to be able to join this conversation. And Victoria, I didn't know you worked in Culver City. I also taught out there, so don't know if we met or not. Maybe we did. I'm trash if I do not remember. But um. <laughs> appreciate you. Nice to meet you, Chris. And last but certainly not least, Jana, tell us who you are. Tell everybody what's up. Hi guys, my name is Jana Davis. I'm born and raised in Houston, Texas. Uh, currently, right now, just started teaching at SoulCycle almost a year. I'm at my first year Soul anniversary is coming up within the next hey. few months. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a fitness fitness professional too, and um like Chris, felt so honored to be asked to be on this panel, been following it and watching all the podcasts and live Zooms for the past few weeks. So as well, honored and grateful to be a part. Well, I'm, I'm certainly happy to have all of you guys here. I'm glad that, uh, you know, you responded. If I did slide into your DMs, because like, you know, I don't have everybody's number automatically. Um, and, you know, I need to, uh, that's, that's my way. That's my way. But appreciate you guys for one, answering immediately and two, being so willing uh, to share your experiences and your perspectives. And before, you know, we go any further and y'all didn't even know I was going to do this, but I, I'd really like us to take just a moment of silence for the loss of black life that continues to happen. These lives have been taken from us. The murder is still merciless and uh, people are still being killed. So before we move any further, let's just take a moment of silence in, in remembrance of those lives and voices lost. Thank you so much uh, just for, for taking that moment of silence. It's not um, easy to continue to, you know, show up Monday and Friday and amplify our voices when a lot of voices are being, you know, snuffed out. Um, and it's not lost on me that while we have made very, you know, small progresses and, and we've had, you know, teeny tiny wins throughout as far as various bills and laws being passed and, and, you know, small incremental change. It's not lost on me, the greater issue here. It's not lost on me that the reason I started this is because I want everyone to develop a passion for people, a value for human life, specifically black life. You know, it's not about likes and views and streams. It's about voices being heard and understood and perspectives being revealed 
in a way that has not been revealed before. So thank you for, for that moment of silence because that was just a fraction of the amount of people and voices that have been silenced. And I know you felt it. It was uncomfortable if you're on live or even, you know, the three of you, it was real. Like you, you, you need to think about it. It's not over. So while I'm here hopeful for, for the future, it's not lost on me, the present. So uh, without, with, with that said, and in that kind of energy, um, Victoria, uh, I would love it if, we can sort of hop back into, and welcome back, by the way, hop back into the idea and the reality of implicit bias. Yeah, so I've been thinking about implicit bias a lot as it relates to like social selection, so like who our friends are, who we're spending our time with. Um, so last time I spoke about implicit bias as something that everyone has, like there's no way to be a sentient human being and not have biases. Um, but a lot of times those biases go unchecked, right? Like they're not things that we think about because they're so normal to us. Um, and that's been coming up a lot for me in social situations. So I live in Boston and prior to uh, COVID and the world turning off, um, I was a social person. Um, and so when we would go out, I would notice all the time that I was frequently the only black person at the bars that we were going to. Um, and Boston is like very, very segregated, um, not like legally or policy-based, but like as a remnant of when legal and policy-based segregation was still in effect. Um, it hasn't changed significantly since then. Um, and then some like social factors like um, gentrification um, have been playing like really stark effects. So I'm very certain that I'm the only black person in my neighborhood. Um, I'm usually the only black person at the bars we go to. And so I've been thinking a lot about how that doesn't just happen, right? Like those are like implicit decisions that are being made by people. Um, and so I've been looking into a, a little bit more. And when we think about residential isolations, 65% of Americans say that they want to live in diverse neighborhoods. And when I say 65% of Americans, the study was done on college educated people who identify as Democrats. And I use that statistic because I feel like that is somewhat indicative of like the type of person that might engage in this conversation, specifically through the lens of SoulCycle. Um, and so 65% of that population says they want to live in a diverse neighborhood but only 15 to 30% actually do live in diverse neighborhoods, diverse. Um, and that, pop, that percentage goes even lower when you consider like, all right, you said you wanna live in a diverse neighborhood, but let's say you live in a diverse neighborhood in which white people are not the majority. And then they're like, no thanks, that's not what I asked for. Like, I just wanted a sprinkling of diversity. I didn't wanna like live in diversity. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. And then I also, work professionally as i mentioned in fraternity sorority life which tends to be like this little like microcosm of broader universities and like a social experiment in and of itself and what we learn there is that the organizations that are um highly social that have like better recruiting statistics or that like the students will perceive them as like top tier or, like the most popular those organizations always tend to be the least diverse um, and the organizations that um, don't have those sort of metrics tend to be the most diverse. And so what does that say about the way that we value diversity, the way that we value people that are not within the major majority? 
um, and the way that our social systems are sort of reinforcing those things. And I think all of the things that I mentioned are things that are implicit, like there are small decisions yeah. being made um, and that lends itself to larger social problems. I, I want to ask uh, like a follow up just in, in listening to what you were just saying, how much of, because when we first, when you were first on and we spoke on implicit bias, we, you know, whittled it all the way down to implicit bias being like a reflex. It's, it's something that is learned and developed in order uh, to survive. It's, it's like a survival. It's like, it's that, like it's that far back. You brought up like cavemen and how like they had to develop these implicit biases in order to essentially survive and learn how to react. And we, we do the same thing as we're, you know, growing up from babies to now. And so I guess as far as residential, um, and as far as even like the diversity or lack thereof that you've seen on, you know, the college campus, how much of that do you think lends itself to this idea of survival by being with people that look like you? Yeah, I think that's like very relevant specifically in colleges and universities because for a lot of students, it's a brand new atmosphere. So when you walk into a room of like 200 people and you're like, all right, where do I go? Where do I go? Like you're going to go to the people that look like you. Um, and if that's not a racial thing, you'll often go to the people that like maybe dress the way that you do, or if you can hear them speaking, like maybe they talk the way that you talk. Um, and that can be something that's really common. Um, and then within specifically like the recruitment style of fraternity sorority life, a lot of times people are making these statements like, okay, I want someone who has similar values to me, or I want someone who is like of upstanding moral character. But like how much of that is like, I want someone that does what I like to do and does it the way that I like to do it and doesn't challenge me very much in our conversations and like doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. Um, and what type of person does that lend itself to? A lot of the times it's a reproduction of the same type of person every time. Um, and that can get really dangerous and oppressive and like terrifying for a lot of people to be a part of. Um, and we do that too in our social circles. Like yeah. when we're people you might meet someone new and have that moment of like that person's too different from me I'm not going to do this and then you don't engage that person again yeah I, something that you just said that is like solid and something that I think is worth I guess making bigger is this idea of like how language in itself can be oppressive and you weren't saying that specifically but in a selection process there are certain uh like tiers that need to be like boxes that need to be checked in order for you to be selected and like I think that is dictated in language and that is dictated in someone being selected for a group and the things that they're looking for. And I just think like that is something to think about how our language and how our selection process can be oppressive in and of itself and it's not to say that nobody's ever thought of what I'm saying right now but it's simply to highlight it and point it out so that when we are walking not just as black people or white people but like anybody you know what I mean? How, how does, what, what part does our language play in how we can uh, uh, effectively oppress someone and, and to that end discriminate against someone based on the language that we're using in the selection process that we, that we employ? And, and, and with that, I kind of wanted to ask Jana. Um, right, before you I, go on, yeah. I have a quick question for Victoria. Victoria, what did you say your role was dealing with sororities and fraternities on the campus that you work on? So right now I'm the fraternity sorority advisor at Salem State University. So I advise all of our fraternities and sororities by all, I mean, there's four of them. Um, and then in the fall, I'll be a PhD student at the University of Maryland and I'll be working as the graduate coordinator for diversity, equity and inclusion in the office of fraternity and sorority life. So I'll be like 
do in diversity stuff in all of the fraternities and sororities. Gotcha. I have a quick question for you. And I went to HBCU. I went to Texas Southern University. So it's a black college. It's black sororities and fraternities and predominantly black people on campus. You said something and it made me wonder, are there sororities and fraternities that are diverse? Or normally is what happens is this is a black fraternity. This is an Asian fraternity. This is a white fraternity. And you are like kind of attracted to those particular fraternities or sororities depending on your race because it's predominantly or actually 100% black, 100% white, 100% Asian. Do so there you have are some fraternities and sororities that are diverse or in your experience you haven't seen that? Yes, there definitely are. So there are different councils of fraternities and sororities. So there's um, historically white ones, historically black ones, historically, um, Latinx ones, historically Asian ones. Um, those are like the national councils. I'm sure that there are other um, cultural group at different universities as well. Um, but those are the national councils. And so, oh, and there's multicultural Greek council, also national. Um, so multicultural Greek council does tend to be incredibly diverse because the purpose of that council sort of is to talk about culture, but talk about a wide range of different cultures. Um, the other ones, do tend to be predominantly of one culture, um, specifically historically Asian, historically Latinx, and historically Black tend to be not 100% of any of those, but predominantly. And then the historically white ones also do tend to be predominantly white, um, but do have a bit more diversity. It tends to be just slightly less diverse than the university itself. Um, so if a university, let's say I went to USC for my master's, um, the black population there is somewhere around 4% and our fraternities and sororities are probably have somewhere around like a 3% black percentage just because of like what's available. Well, and because of other things, but also because of what's available. I think it's about what's available to be honest. Yeah. Like if, if I think about like I went to Notre Dame undergrad and one, we didn't, we didn't have fraternities but I would assume if we did like because it is like a private Catholic school with mostly just private Catholic white kids outside of you know everyone else that gets in like that it, the fraternities would be predominantly white and then if there was a historically black uh, fraternity on the campus I know that like just about all you know I could like freely say I think just about all the black people would be like Yes, like that. Cool. Like, this is where we meet. Is this where we hang out? Awesome. Bet. I've been looking forward to this all week. Um, but um, Jana, uh, I, I wanted yes. to obviously transition into asking you about the discrimination that you've experienced uh, in the dance world. Yeah, definitely. Um, so prior to my journey as a soul cycle instructor, um, I, and, and I ran track. That's how I ended up going to Texas Southern. But I always danced off and on my whole life. And um, <clears throat> it ended up me, <clears throat> excuse me, like really gleaning to being a part of the pro-cheer pro world. And with that, there are a lot of discriminations. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, the dance world in general does not have levels of discrimination. Of course, you have the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, you have the Dallas Black Dance Company, you have a lot of Black dance companies and organizations, but <clears throat> If you try to get into the pro-cheer world, it's very difficult as an African-American woman. Um, and I get it 
every, and I just want to go on a limb of saying this because I don't know if there are any pro cheerleaders or ex-pro cheerleaders watching and they may have had a different experience. Granted, I'm talking from the experience of being in the South, in Texas, and, um, you know, big hair and, you know, how the stigmas that we have down here. And um, with that being said, what I've experienced on the major teams down here, there are only like a few spots for African-American girls. So you could have a team of like 35 or 40, but it's known that only five or six black girls are gonna get picked. Um, and it's, it's really hard going into it with knowing that's happening. And uh, I kind of started that journey a little bit older. Um, so I think, I was able to like identify certain things because I wasn't like an 18 year old something because once you turn 18 you can audition um and I think it really allowed me to take a step back even in the audition knowing that I've been dancing my whole life knowing I have what it takes and I'm the whole package but still like there that day knowing there's only five spots it does something to you mentally and even with your confidence it really attacks your confidence and like even while I was sitting and just kind of reflecting before we got on this call, I thought back to like the level of like confidence that other nationalities, mostly being white girls have at these auditions is different. You can feel it. And it's cause they know that they have such a big chance of making this team. And this may be their first year trying out. And because there's only five or six spots, it's, it kind of forces African-American women to feel like, oh my God, I have to keep auditioning. So this might be her first time, but this is my fifth time, right. which happens a lot. Yeah. And um, it just does, it kind of eats away at you. And when you're going through the process, like I feel like as African-Americans, Blacks, West Indian Americans, right? Hey now. Stand up, <laughs> hey <now>. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of just make it happen. You make it work. You don't dwell on it, but it, it does, take away from what you should be spending your other um, other moments thinking about like you have to strum up courage and confidence but you should be focusing on is my toe pointed but you're not you're worried about <laughs> okay one two three four twelve okay it's 50 of us here 55 oh, like Lord. you're sitting there counting yeah. in the middle of audition and not worrying about or concerning yourself or focusing on other things that you should be focusing on and it's something like i said that kind of just gets you don't really talk about it like as i have so many friends that are in the dance world we talk about it but it's not like you don't make a big deal about it like you just sure. kind of like with sure. you know just go through think, the motions of it i think something that <clears throat> you're really touching on you, we experience in a lot of different spaces and that's yes. kind of the idea, you know, and we've, I think like almost every conversation, this idea of tokenism and making sure a box is checked, right? Making sure a quota, a quota is fulfilled. Uh, I, I know that as an actor um, and as like a very new young actor, when I was auditioning for grad school, if you would look at like the pamphlets uh, for acting, you would see like the one or two black guys and then like the one black girl and be like, okay, cool. Like, hopefully I'm like the black guy for, you know, this class and no shade towards, you know, where I went to school. But um, if I look at all the classes before me, there was like a formula, you know what I mean? Like there was two very specific kinds of black guys in every class. 
no matter what. Like it was like I could look to like down the line and be like, cool, I'm the of this class. Like I'd be like, I'm the Brooks or the Colby of this class. Like Bryce is Colby is Brooks. Like we're the same kind of, and I'm like, whoo, you know, got my spot. But it shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't be looking around the room of other black people that also want to do what I want to do and be thinking about like them and how I can get in ahead of them or like what do I need to do to navigate my position in like the two spots that are available for for black people um and and with that one of my cousins just my cousin just popped into the comments I saw her put a comment up um and she said something that is so true and I didn't even think about it but it puts African Americans against each other. It puts us against each other. Instead of like trying to help and support each other, yeah. then we're like, oh my God, this is my competition. And you're probably not as welcoming to the person and like, what can I do to help you? Come on, sis, let's go over here and practice this choreography together and things like that. Or you, instead of supporting each other, then you're like trying to fight against each other in a sense. Yeah. And so anybody listening, if you don't know, if you haven't figured out by now, by part eight, what like, institutionalized racism looks or feels like or discrimination looks or feels like just listen to what Jan is talking about as far as there being a limited amount of opportunity in all spaces that we occupy and um Chris you know I I want to get you know your perspective being I mean you you inhabit you know multiple spaces whether it's the acting world or the fitness world and I, I kind of wanted to get your perspective specifically what we talked about you know being like a light-skinned black man in America and what comes with that yeah I'm um, just to piggyback really quick though off of Jana like I can just for like in the acting world let's say if I a breakdown is submitted to me which is this description of the character and then it says all ethnicities on the on the character and then I'm preparing for it I'm going into audition for it and then when I get there I'm the one black person there, and it's one Asian person there, and the rest of the room is white. So it's like, it just it just almost feels like like in my this all ethnicities. Did you just write that because you needed to write that? Like, was were you supposed to write that, or or like why is it not a multicultural of people inside of this room waiting to go audition for this one role? So then, as opposed to just thinking and prepping for the audition for whatever show or movie it is that I'm about to go audition for, now I can maybe even get into my head and like, wow, I'm not I'm not even the look or feel of what they even want so which could be discouraging or, or whatever it is so it, it uh i can definitely relate to you Jenna, in that sense and um just to bring it back to to what victoria said about how 65 percent of americans want to live in a diverse area like i grew up in philly i lived in alany first and then i moved to Shelham. so the way it worked is when i went when i lived in alany i went to a school called saint helena's and it was predominantly black at the time but there was white people there and on the block specifically that i lived on there was probably like maybe 20% black people, I mean, uh, 20% white people that lived on that block. But slowly as the years progressed, they all moved out and then it was, you know, it was the predominantly black and Puerto Rican on that block. Um, now, in regards to like me being a light-skinned black man in America, right? I think the, the one, let me, let me break it down to my mom real quick. My mom is half white, half black. She has blue eyes, she has curly hair. Now, if, if you don't know her, some people might think she's Puerto Rican, but a great grandmother, she's French Creole. So that's where that line comes from. Um, but she always says, my eyes are just blue enough. And because of that, she'll experience like an, an older white man or woman and will say something that's pushing the line to her that is very a racist thing to say just because of the way she looks. And for me, 
my experiences of it is like, it, let's say if, if I'm with a group of white people that I've heard before as when I was younger, it was like, oh, but you're not, you're not black, black. And I'm, it's like, what, what is, what does that mean? And, and it's, and it's almost like we joke about it. It's like, oh, you're, you're just half shit. You're not like full. Oh. Like you're just, you're just only half shit. So it just, it just, it just, it's disrespect. And, and then also too, like they don't even, that's not a realization of maybe that they even know that they're saying these things, you know, or, or they don't even know they mean it or it comes across as this way as they're saying it. So, um, and it's just disrespectful to, get to, to, to my culture. And I uh, just like, it, it just, it's just not a, uh, yeah, like, and, and that's, and that also is something that I've heard multiple times. It's not like it was a one-time occurrence, it's like from different white people in different, in different, um, areas of my life i've heard that you're not black black and it's like well, well what do you mean by you're not black black speak to speak to what that does because last week or not last day monday uh we we spoke to this idea of identity and like the role that that plays just in 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 how we relate mentally physically emotionally like just in this world mm-hmm. and i think you know I feel like, and I can't speak from that experience because I, you know, no one was like, oh, you're not black, black. Like I present, I'm black, you know, like I present that way. So um, where where I would experience that is, you know, how I relate to people and, and how I speak. People are like, oh, well, you're not, you're not black, black. You, you know, you talk like this. So obviously you're like one of the good ones, like one of the good ones, air quotes. And it's like, do you realize, you know, how, how shitty that is for lack of a, for lack of a better word, but like, how did that, I guess, impact your identity growing up, hearing that? Um, I feel like growing up, it made me kind of like, maybe self-conscious in certain in certain areas or feel like intimidated to go into like a certain group, of it, whether it was like an all, an all white group or an all black group. It's just, it just, for me personally, I think like I wore it, I wore it on my sleeve and then I just developed like this tough exterior that like your words cannot hurt me and I'm going to enter this space regardless. And that like, whatever you say, I'm just going to allow it to ricochet off me. And like, yes, I hear it. Yes, I feel it. But I can't let that stop me from propelling myself forward. Um, Which is like, that's to, that's something that I don't think people understand that black people just have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just black people, but I think we have to do it a lot more in life because it's not, and I don't want to look, this is not a PC situation. So I'm not trying to step on toes, but like being black, isn't a closet you can come out from, yeah. right? Like I, I, once I leave the house, I'm perceived as black. There's no hiding it. There's no choice. I don't get to work up the courage and then like present myself to the world as black, right? Like that's not a process that happens. So with that black people for forever, have had to develop this this thick skin and this resilience to try and succeed regardless. And it's not an easy thing, you know what I mean? It's not something that should be taken lightly. I see right here, somebody wrote, you're black, black, based on how people would describe you to the police if they saw you late at night and felt threatened. And that's 100% true, like two, it's like, I can either be your homie or I could be somebody that is uh, a threat to you. So like, I remember one time it was late at night, it was me and all my friends. I was probably like, I was between 16 and 18. We we're just outside in front of my house playing football and there was a pizza store nearby. And then I don't know where the cops pulled up. The cops pulled up and they said they got a complaint in the neighborhood. And eventually they told us that 
a lady called the cops on you guys because they said you were breaking into this pizza store. And it was about six black men and they all, they asked for all of our IDs and everything. I remember my friend gave him his high school, gave his high school ID. But again, just because we were six black kids outside where my house was, but this pizza store is right here. We got the cops calling us, Amy Cooper situation, because we were just black kids outside. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the DWB, you know what I mean? Driving while black, like you can't, there's, Kirsten talked about this like a week ago, Kirsten Ferguson lives in like a a dope neighborhood, drives a dope car, you know, she's, she's killing it in her life. And she got pulled over in her own neighborhood right outside of her house. And they didn't believe that it was her house. And rather than, you know, saying like, we pay you to be here to patrol our neighborhood, you know, she had to, you know, value her life and care about, you know, preservation of of life and self and ultimately resilience, Um, which just, you know, is not okay. But we see this in in so many areas of our life. And uh, I wanted to just in connection to that, I know Janice said she worked in corporate America for a while before before getting into the fitness world and please we've had a couple of people talk about it but i'd love to hear you speak on your experiences in corporate america um as a, as a black woman yeah um so before i started my journey as a soul cycle instructor i worked in oil and gas um for five years and before that i worked a year and a half at a company like a training company um and they do they had a different divisions i worked in the training department but um, yeah, during my time doing that, I did notice that um, I began to notice that if you show signs of strength, and I'm gonna say taking up for yourself in terms of like, if a manager comes and is like, do this, I want the whole department to do this. And then a week later, they're like, I didn't tell you guys to do that. What are you talking about? I know so many people on this chat probably can relate to that. And you're like, yes, you did. Yeah. You told us that, like, taking up for yourself in terms of that. Um, and they view it as a sign of, like, she's angry. Why are you, like, I have had a coworker, and we still have conversations about different things. She's white. And she would always tell me, but you're so angry. And I'm like, no, not only am I taking up for myself, but I'm taking up for all of us. Because you guys, which I'm like 10 to 20 years younger than you guys, don't have the wherewithal to speak up and say, no, that is not what you guys told us to do. We're doing what you told us to do. But it does, like, she's the first person that actually came and like has told me multiple times, like, but it comes off angry. Why can't you just go along and not say anything? And I'm like, no, I can't do that. Sorry. Sorry that it makes you uncomfortable that I'm taking up for you and me, technically, but I'm not going to do that. I don't care. And I was the youngest as far as my colleagues and the management. Like, I'm talking like 20, 30 years younger than these people. And I just, I couldn't just sit on my hands and just not, it's, it's a sense of taking up for yourself. And it's someone may look at it and be like, oh my God, it's just a process, Jana. Just change and do the process that they said. No, it's bigger than that. And that's what we don't understand. It is bigger than that. And by not speaking up and saying something, it's allowing, it's, there are all these little seeds that are already planted 
and we're dealing with people that are now adults and they don't realize that they are reacting to you this way because of a seed that is planted in them. And I know that we all don't have the power to change people, but I'm gonna take it for myself in the process, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so yeah, but I think that I, it, people are told things like, you're coming off a little angry, you're coming off a little harsh. Um, I have conversation with family members and friends and they're like, I know I have to sit there and bite my tongue because it will be misread. And I try to encourage people, and I know it's easier said than done, because I've been in the corporate world, you want to come off politically correct. And I was literally telling my cousin this other day, you are going to have to light them up. You're going to have to let them have it, because that is the only way they're going to understand that what they are saying and doing is not right. Why is it that we feel like we have to like bridle our tongue, but they can say, and when I'm saying they, I mean white or even other ethnicities. I had management that were other ethnicities that weren't white, but they acted like they were. They can say whatever they want, however they want and curse and all of this. But the moment a person of color decides to express themselves, not even with vulgar language, just in a forceful, firm manner, it is perceived as a angry black woman or man. I have been encouraging so many people, don't worry about that. Let them think you're angry or whatever, but taking up for yourself and making a stand for what is right, whether it is something as simple as a process or someone treating you differently is what you have to do. Don't feel, yeah. don't allow that stigma to hang over your head and cause you to bridle your tongue and not say and be who you feel like you need to be and take up for yourself. So and I, think this I know is the there's so many people. Yeah, so yeah. many people are probably dealing with that right now this is this is like because because we we're in the in the season we are and the movement is not just a moment but it's it's ongoing i think that it is important for white people to recognize that for so long black people have been walking on eggshells for so long we have been taught by parents or you know people in high places or even black people that already work there to like play the game play it safe you know what I mean like please don't raise your voice actually don't even like that bass in your voice right now like take it out uh because you're gonna be you're gonna be frightening my you know my first year of, of grad school um in acting they like broke broke me all the way down just as a person they were like you got to change all these things right to like figure out who you are and something that I had to come to realize is that I never stood up all the way tall uh I was kind of always hunched down uh, I would never like like stand up and like let my chest be as big as it is. Uh, I would always speak up here. I was I was talking really high all the time. I was I was up here, you know what I mean? Like because because I was trying to not be uh, a threat. You know, I was trying to be relatable in a way where I was going to be taken serious. And if I had like a complaint or something to say, I had to be trained that in order to be heard and taken seriously and not blinded by the threat. I need to speak up here and like, you know, be smaller than I actually am in order to one, be taken seriously, but two, like save my life eventually. And and we see this not just in corporate America, but we see this in school. You know what I mean? We see this when someone is called on and the the kids and the kids are first off, kids kids are terrible. We need to like be better. They <laughs> teaching our kids how to do stuff. Um, but I, I kinda wanted to in, in that light of, of schools and education, uh, Victoria, I know you wanted to speak on, you know, the inequalities in our educational system in general. 
Yeah. So I study education. I'll get my PhD in higher education and already have my master's in the same field. Um, so education is something I think about constantly. Um, and I think I first started the sort of like tinkering process um, my first year of college. So I'm from a small city outside of New York City called Beacon. Um, Miles, last episode, said he's from Newburgh. That's like down the street from the town that I'm hey, from. Hey, that's what's up. Um, and so my city is predominantly Black and Latinx. And, you know, I went to high school thinking like, all right, I'll just get my extracurriculars in and I'll take the SAT once and we'll see how it goes. And I will get good grades and like, I'll get into a good school. Cause like, that's how it works. Right. No, that's not how it works at all. Um, so then I get to college. Uh, I was an athlete. I was on the track and field team. Um, yeah, go track. <laughs> and I remember my first week of school, a woman in my dorm asked me like, what's your SAT score? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm, it's not important to me to know that. I don't, doesn't affect my self-worth. Um, and I realized that everyone else remembered their SAT score. And I was like, all right, well, that's something to remember. And then she asked me how many IB classes I took. And I was like, mm, I don't know what the acronym means. Um, and she's like, international baccalaureate. And I was like, I never heard I those words that. before. That's that's what <laughs> like that's not a thing at my high school because IB classes cost money for the school and my school right. had no money so no IBs um and she's like all right well what AP classes did you take and I was like also none I took local community college courses my senior year of high school because like they were free and APs costed money it, so we're still both here though so <laughs> what's up um and so in that experience I realized pretty quickly like this world that I thought was like fair and just and based on merit wasn't at all. Um, it was uh, in many ways based on your access to college prep and your access to things that cost money. Um, and we know that we fund public education based on property taxes. So the neighborhoods that have more money get more resources. So you're giving more money to populations that already have more money. Um, Similarly, I mentioned I got my master's at USC. So while I was there was the college admission scandal where uh, Miss Lori Laughlin on Becky with the bad grades was bribing people to accept her daughters into USC. Um, and I was talking with my students who were undergrads about this and they were so angry that someone like would dare to use their money to get into a good college Meanwhile, I know the kids that are so angry that someone bought their way into school went to prep schools and they took the SAT multiple times and they took those thousand dollar SAT prep courses and they went to nerd camps for lack of a better word, they called them that. Um, and they had access to all these things that cost money that other kids don't have access to. And yet because someone else used their money in a way that yes, is illegal. Um, they were so angry because they had worked so hard and were just like completely blind to the idea that class and race determine your college and educational outcomes like so starkly in the United States and like didn't touch on that at all. Um, and then speaking of class, we also know that schools that are less funded also tend to be predominantly black and Latinx. Um, and so that just like perpetuates the inability to sort of rise and like achieve that American dream when you're so um, statistically and historically tethered to one way of being, yeah. those resources just aren't as 
readily available for folks. And it's, it's, it's cyclical, you know what I mean? At the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a cycle of oppression, which we're not, you know, blind to. I'm sure we've heard that phrase now in this season of like, it's just cycles upon cycles of oppression. And it just, it feeds on itself. And it's like it, its own, like the engine runs on its own because racism is still very much alive. And I'm glad now that, you know, so many eyes are being open to it now, but you know, it's gonna take more than just opening our eyes, right? It's gonna take more than even speaking to it. It's gonna take us rolling up our sleeves and getting in there and actually uh, affecting some real change. Something, I, so, okay. So the only reason I was able to go to the high school kind of with my friends, like close to my neighborhood, is because that high school, my parents were like, look, this high school has the IB program. So we'll let you go there because they have that. If they didn't, you wouldn't get to go there, right? Because they weren't about that life. They were like, I didn't get to do anything in my neighborhood. I was always shipped to some other school to, you know, that's them, that's my parents. But I was like, I want to go, you know, to school with my friends and like my homies. And they're like, okay, they have the IB program. They have AP classes there. You can go. Now, it's int- I don't know who paid for that. I don't know how that happened. But that school was surrounded by like three other private schools. So maybe somehow. Uh, but it was a public school and it was not okay. But they had AP and IB classes. And I remember the reason I ended up transferring is because my mom was upset that the only kids that were being taken care of at that school were in IB classes. The only kids that were cared for uh, were the kids that were in your IB and AP, AP classes. And that's not something I cared about then because I was like a kid and I was like, the only reason I'm doing this is because y'all said I have to do it and like, I just want to play football and hang out with my friends. But when I transferred to my, my next high school, which was not in a black neighborhood at all and was predominantly white and they had the AP and the IB classes, I didn't really feel a difference. And they had CP. I didn't even know college prep was its own thing. It was like CP, AP, IB. There were, there were all these different, and honors. There were like four tiers of like levels of prep uh, at this predominantly white school. And, but then it didn't, it never felt like there was a separation because it felt like everybody at that school in this better neighborhood was like taken care of and cared for. And like, just because I was an IB or AP didn't mean like, there was like not really a divide. Whereas at my first high school, it was very clear, like, Bryce is the IB kid. Like, he, <laughs> he's over there. He thinks he's better than us. And I was like, I don't, you know. I just have to do this. They were like, well, how'd you even get in? And then we get into, like, how we start to shame each other for being intelligent, which is not, a, not okay. But um, in that, you know, kids suck sometimes. <laughs> like, you know, it, it starts young. You know, kids, regardless of race, it starts young. And we start to, to learn our ways of being and learn how to relate to things that are different and different than us and, and what we're comfortable with, not comfortable with, what we need to do to fit in so that, so that I am not labeled that thing over there and so that I can survive. Uh, and I know Chris wanted to, to talk about kids today and, and what they're experiencing. So Chris. Well, yeah, like for me, just in a, along the lines of that, like moving from Philly to Sheltonham is where like things, I guess, especially in the education system where it changed for me, because since I moved from this Philadelphia area to Shellham, which is a suburban area, there, the way it was categorized is that it was like phase three, phase two, phase one, and then there was like honors and AP and then whichever other classes they offered, right? So since I transitioned from this school in the inner city to the suburban school, I immediately was put into like the phase three classes with automatic, which was the lowest of the classes. So it automatically made me feel like some type of way or less than or inferior just because of like 
it was like 12 people in my class when the normal size and we walk past class and go to the bathroom it's like 35 people or let's say something like that so just because of that made me feel a way um through the education but in regards to education now it just makes me it just makes me think about like what kids see so like when i was in school social media wasn't a thing yet um but social media is just such a big thing of what kids see today and i feel like what they're influenced by especially like if they have a strong influence from the outside world as opposed to like people that are blessed enough to have two parents in their household i was blessed enough to have two parents in the household but not everybody has two parents in their household so some kids that i feel um they're very heavily influenced by whether it's social media whether it's the people they see that are around them and um, i think that can just be a big deciding factor what that can determine what route they go down or like what their interests are whether like if their cousin went to an ivy league school or like or if their cousin or if their uh best friend winds up being a drug dealer down the block like i just feel like there's so many um directions based off of what you see in your environment and what you're influenced by and kids today especially with so much access to like your idols whether it's um people in the music industry or entertainment industry and politics or what, like whatever it is there's so many um just directions that i feel that a kid can go down that can turn them to a positive direction or a negative direction I think what I mean what you're speaking to is this this idea of access that you know we never had before um and with that it's it's placed like an enormous responsibility on influencers and people that you know didn't ask for this you know people that didn't ask to be a role model but because you know they want to have a social media presence and they want to promote their brand they're now out there and in being out there there's a responsibility to to the kids that are watching uh unfortunately but like it is it is what it is once you become an influencer or a public figure you can say i'm not a role model but you're still going to be like you you can say i ain't come here to do this which is fine but you are one now uh you're here and so what are you going to do to honestly help shape and mold these young minds that are way more concerned with what you're doing than what is being taught to them in the classroom or what their parents are saying because they're looking to you they have to be here with their parents because this is who takes care of them. But like, as far as my advice and, and what I'm listening to and hearing, like I'm getting it, you know, as a kid from like the people that, that I follow and the stuff that's popping up on my feed left and right. And like, you know, I'm, we, we wanted to talk about the N word, right? Like let's, this is just boom, there it is, bow, dropped it off, right? Um, and I know a huge, I know that that word had already been used in negative connotation. Then it was like, we took it and tried to turn it positive for like in the black community. But now with like music and access to music and things are just explicit now, like there's really no editing of everything. Like kids are taking in that word daily. And the conversations that come up between a black kid and a white kid about that word are frequent and they're important. And I just wanted to get your take, Chris, on that. Yeah, uh, the N word, I feel like, uh, <laughs> it's just one of those words that can make, despite what, I mean, what, whichever, regardless of your ethnicity, like it can make you feel uncomfortable. And um, after I spoke with you all on the phone yesterday, I texted my friends from home and I asked them, um, like, what do you, what do you say when um, a white person ask you whether they can say the n-word or not and then their immediate answer was you can't say that shit like that was the immediate thing that most of them said and i'm like yeah. can, can you expound just a little bit so i can have some <laughs> hey. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, then they, they gave me a thing. So my friend June, he said this, and I thought it was interesting. He said, um, he said, I like to think the reply to that is that every instance that a black person says the word is an unconscious says, sense of protest to the very inception of the word. Black people were able to take a word away from, from white folks that was weaponized as a tool of hate and make it their own. And then he also later said that on his personal note, he does try to not say the word as often because he thinks the world would be a better place without saying it. Um, but in regards to it, like being in music, being a part of the culture, it's obviously a word that's heavily in the culture. Um, now, there was a video I posted the other day. I saw that Shannon Sharp posted it. It was a guy and he gave this great analogy about why white people feel the need to say it. He's like, I don't understand why they feel the need to say it. And, he, and his analogy was, my wife, she likes to call her friends, bitch, what's up, bitch? Or, 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 you know, she likes to say that. My lady does the same thing. She say, bitch, what you doing? I'm not going to go say, what's up, bitch, what you doing? <laughs> like, that's, just, that's just not, no, that's just not, that's just not what I'm going to do. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, it, it just, it, 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 it makes me think of too also of like the times I were a kid and I'm walking down the street and then a car drives down the road and they yell out, nigger. And then also the distinction of the word nigger with the hard R as opposed to was good, my nigga. Like the, like the difference between the two and how, like especially as a white person, like I feel the fact that you're able to, one, use it as like, I'm your homie. And two, you can also use it as a weapon. It's a big reason to me of why like the word shouldn't even be used at all. Cause like you can't say what's up my nigga and also call me a nigger. And, and like, and the fact that you're able to do the same two things is like, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just an all. And um, I guess the last point, oh, also too, I was thinking about this. I used to have a roommate, um, he was a white guy, he's from Oregon. And he told me a story once about how him and his family, they were watching football on the television. And um, he said his grandmother was looking on TV to watch football. He said, oh, look at that little nigger boy on the television. Exactly. But she was, she's in her 80s. And like I expect women in her, any, any white person in her 80s to be that way. I mean, they were alive during an era where you were allowed to be racist and could be discriminated against. And that was like normal for them. So like, but still like, and then she, but afterwards she doubled down and said, oh, I forgot you can't say that anymore. Like, no, you didn't forget. You can't say that anymore. Like, that's not, that's, that's just... That's that's not that's not a thing. Um, that's, that's just not that's not no. That's not how it works anymore. Um, lastly, my point to it is that this is this is how I feel. And I know everybody might not feel this way. Like you say, I don't speak for all black people, but any person, especially white people, but any person, if you do not feel comfortable enough to go in front of a group of black people that you do not know and say the word nigga, then you should not be saying the word nigga. Yes. Boom. I have, okay, look, I, my brain in listening to everything you just said went in maybe a thousand directions. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out which like strand I want to like hang on to and swing like Tarzan from. Um, I think, okay, that, Wait, that can analogy. Can we just start with the, the bitch analogy? The bitch. Yeah. Like bitch, that was, that was like the most perfect, yes, most Chris. best analogy I've heard for in relation to the N-word because it's true like I'm not gonna walk up to any woman 
and be like, what up, bitch? Like, I can't do that. I don't feel comfortable doing that. And so I'm not going to do it. But if, you know, if that's like the, the, and if you're a woman and that's the relationship that you have with somebody, you know what I mean? Then like, it's fine. And I think that is like a, a great analogy for even black people using it with one another. Like there are certain friends in certain instances where you feel like you're like, cool, like this is that I can say that. Right. But then there are other friends that could, that are black and you're like, no, not with them. Like, this isn't, yeah. we don't do that. Like, we don't say that. That's not, that's not the vibes here. Like, that's Facts. not their truth. That's not their experience. That's not how they grew up. And to, to exactly what you said for anybody, but especially if you white, if you don't feel comfortable going into a group of, in front of a group of black people and just saying the N word like that and just being fine, then don't say it. Like, that's, that's, that was, that was great. And I think something that you said as far as the example of like the people watching the game and she said what she said, you know, as 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 an actor, as a performer, mostly on stage recently, like I've been in shows where like they're racially, you know, charged and like a white person is going to have to say nigger with like a hard R, right? And what I see in their process is what I should see in the whole world, right? Because yeah. they know it's in the script. When we're doing table reads, they skip it. They're like, it's not real. I don't want to say it yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even when we're rehearsing and like the show hasn't even started, they're going to like not do it because it like does something to them when they see me hear them say it, right? Because it hurts. No matter if we're pretending or not, like no matter if it's an act and this isn't real, like yeah. if I'm, if you're living truthfully and I'm living truthfully in a moment and you say it honestly, I'm a, it's going to hit me in a way that is going to tear me down. And I don't understand it. Like, even when you're a kid, as a black kid, I heard it from a white person at a very young age, didn't yeah. know what the word meant, but it hurt. You know what I mean? And I, I, you can't, I can't teach what that is. I can't explain what that is, but I know what I felt. Um, but it should be unbelievably tough to, especially as a white person, because of the history of that word, to even like form your lips to say it. Now I know it's hard now because it's been so popularized in, in pop culture. Like it, it just is what it is. Like it's every other word in the song. It could be the whole hook of yeah. the song, right? Like, it, it, and you hanging out with people, especially like black culture is so like in, like it's popular. Like we don't even, we're not even gonna talk about appropriation today, yeah. but it's such a thing right now that like white people want to be with black people like it's so <laughs> it's such a switch from like how life used to be like not 50 years you know ago but like now they're like yo we cool like I talk like this and I want to I want to kick it and like I'm around it all the time and I really 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 want to say it like I hang out with only black people and y'all get to say it and I really want to say it and like look I'm not gonna act like I don't get that because before I employed that word, I hung out with black people that used that word. And I didn't use it for a while because it just wasn't, you know, what I did. And slowly but surely, I was like, cool, you know, and I feel like the first time I said it, every black person was like, whoa, what? Hey, chill out. Don't, you know, don't say that. It hurt when you said it. And I was like, what? Oh, no. I'm, but I'm, you know, like, but I, they're like, it's different. Like, you know, figure it out. <laughs> That's a different conversation. But I'm not going to act like I don't understand in, in now, like in society now, the desire to say it in a way that isn't purposely hurtful or in a way that isn't purposely to tear anyone down. But the fact of the matter is the word is a weapon, like Chris said, and, you know, don't say it. 
like that my stance bryce michael wood on for your discomfort part eight white people don't say the n-word just don't like don't want to say it don't fixate on it if you hear it in a song it should sting like i, I know it's being popularized again i know we're being desensitized to the meaning of the word and kind of the sting that used to come along with it yeah. but just think about take the music away take the hook away and just think about a black person in front of you you're not bopping to music anymore you're simply saying the word because realize that even if i'm listening to the song with you the moment i hear it come out of your mouth it's gonna hit me different yeah it's gonna land different it's not gonna be drake it's gonna be you you know what i mean it's not gonna be kanye it's gonna be you and it's gonna it's gonna hit me in a way that is uncomfortable um and I'm gonna have to deal with it, you know what I mean? And there are all kinds of ways to deal with it. I call you out, I cannot, I can, you know, bury it and then it blows up in your face way later. Um, they're all, you know, it's all up to me. Um, there were so many other things we were supposed to talk about, but I really wanted to make sure we focused on that is kind of how we close things out today. Uh, because we we touched on a lot and I'm I'm really happy and so thankful for Janet Chris and Victoria sharing their experiences and their perspectives and educating us in a way that, you know, it's not our job to educate anyone. This isn't a Q and A, you know, this is simply a conversation um, that is, you know, been observed. Um, I know Jana, before we, before we head out, I know you wanted to encourage us and that, you know, I'm all about, yeah. I'm all about the encouragement. Yeah, no, um, so when me and Bryce were talking, well, we all, chatted with each other about like what we wanted to talk about today. Um, one of the things when I was sitting and reflecting was just really want to encourage people that, you know, this is, Bryce has been saying this in every episode, this is not a moment, it is a movement, it is happening. And I'm grateful that it's happening now. Um, and we all have a major part to play in this thing. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming. <clears throat> You know, I was listening to, I feel like Claire was talking about, you know, at first she didn't feel comfortable with protesting. And then, you know, she went with Tramel and it, she felt so good after that. Um, but even with that being said, like, just because there are tons of protests happening right now and everybody's doing it and it can feel like the cool thing to do. Like, if that is not your vein, if that's not what you feel comfortable doing, if that's not what you feel compelled and led to do, then don't do it. I think right now, more than ever before, we need to really hone in on what we really feel led and passionate about and find a way to bring about change in that arena, whatever that may be. And Bryce has been saying that on a lot of the previous podcasts, like whatever industry or arena or purpose or passion you have, maybe own in on that and figure out a way you can bring about change, even if it's having conversations, even if you have you know, hiring power, you know, if you are in HR or you're a manager and you, you feel like there could be more diversity where you work, you know, even if it's taking those steps to, you know, employ or give opportunities to people of color, you know, I feel like it's, this movement is not just about protesting. It's not just about posting things on Instagram. It's about bringing forth the change in various sectors of our lives and in various communities around us. So um, yeah, I just really want to encourage everyone to like, I'm even still kind of searching for exactly what I'm going to put, how I'm going to put my hands to the plow with this thing. 
And when we, SoulCycle gave us a platform a few weeks ago to do the live um, virtual rides and to select a organization that we wanted to bring light to and support, I chose Colin Kaepernick's organization, Know Your Rights Camp. And with kind of piggybacking on what Chris was talking about, like the younger people and the kids and, you know, I too agree that there are a lot of them out there that need a lot of guidance and direction. And that's why I like Colin's organization so much because he has different workshops. He calls them camps, but they're like these day long workshops with various people from various industries. Like I was researching earlier, like holistic doctors, people who are real estate and development, um, have real estate and development firms um, that are they come and they talk to the kids and they you know give them insight about ways to like that they can thrive physically mentally and financially so i just want to encourage everyone to like find an organization that's out there doing something that speaks to you that you connect with one thing i really like that colin did is he gave each kid a backpack full of like dope stuff but also a year membership to ancestry.com so they can like really track their roots, which we, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, like the fact that we have to do that now, but I do think it's important for these kids to have identity, like nowhere. Cause a lot of them are struggling with identity crisis. Um, so yeah, I think just, I want to take the second to encourage everyone, find your place in this thing. Like this is not just happening right this second. And maybe it's being, televised in the way it is because we're all stuck home for a pandemic but I really feel like this time it's going to be a little different it's going to stick around and the last thing I want to say vote 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 and the last time we had like um local elections it was like right before the whole pandemic like got out of hand in Texas um I sat and like looked up a ballot and sat there and researched like it got lengthy and I was like, okay, I have to go vote. The time is about to run out. <laughs> but yeah. I was like, dang, I should have done this a long time ago. Like if it's don't just go to the polls and be like, I don't know who to pick and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, if you sign up to vote from like mail in your ballot, which if you've been looking at the news lately, we probably all are gonna be doing mail in ballots pretty soon. But if you elect to do that, you can then take your time and look up each candidate and their policies that they stand for and pick a candidate that you feel like is f- going to fight for, you know, some of the same things that you believe in. So I know I could talk about this for a very long time. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Thank you so much for encouraging us at the end. And it's, you know, exactly that, you know, we don't have to be perfect in this. It's simply about being present and, and taking the time and taking the necessary steps. And I guess, I want to leave us with this as, as we head out. Um, a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, a lot of phobias, you know, in general, um, you know, it's all fear, like the word phobia, whether it's like homophobia or like anything, like it's, it's a fear. It's, it's a fear of the unknown. And fear, unfortunately, is power. Fear is control. Um, and I think we've as a as as the black community, we've experienced that fear and that power and that control um, for a very long time. It's kind of dictated how how we move, whether that's that's police, whether that's a boss, whether that's teachers, whether that's people that 
whole, you know, whole year future in their hands, uh, you know, a lot of things are based on fear. And a lot of reactions are also based on fear, fear of the unknown, fear of not knowing how to do something. And, you know, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to have an interview with CBS last week and, they, and they're posting it, you know, today at some point. And she asked me like, why, why are you hopeful? Like, what, what is giving you hope in this season? And so I'd like to share why I'm hopeful. It's because um, what's unique about this time and this period in history is that we're living in a time where we have like grandparents and great great grandparents that had parents or grandparents that were slaves, right? Or if you white slave owners. And then we have a generation of people that were in the civil rights movement, right? But it was a very specific movement and they were only influenced by the history that they had just before that, right? And then after civil rights, there was kind of this bubble in this pocket of, of, a, of a country that thought for maybe like 10 years, like racism isn't a thing anymore. Like, this is great. Like, life is good. Like, 980, like 90s, early 2000s. And then we, we get social media. And we have a generation of people that aren't afraid to post and aren't afraid to talk and aren't afraid to speak out. And that's like our millennials. And then like, what is it, Gen Z? They don't, give, they don't care. They don't care. They're going to call you out on all things that aren't PC. Right, and I think what's giving me hope is the combination of all of that, is like all of those generations existing in this big conversation because we have wisdom, but we also have people that know what it was like to kind of be good, to, to see the positive aspects of our country. And then we have people that wanna fight always, like already fired up on site, I'm posting, I have a platform. I can. I have 2.5 million followers. I don't care what you say. I'm saying exactly what I'm going to say, and people are going to hear me. And that's not something we've ever had. We haven't had kind of the what we were talking about earlier. This level of access. Um, and lastly, what gives me hope is knowing that people are starting to understand that it's not just about being politically correct. It's not just about not offending someone or being respectful. It's actually about changing from the inside out. You know, it's, it's not a mental game. It's not like racial hopscotch, you know what I mean? Like just trying to make sure I get on all the right, you know, tiles to make sure that I'm not racist. Like, no, but actually erase the game, get rid of it and start to like draw new squares so that you can hop on any square that you want to and you're gonna be fine. Like you're building a new foundation from the inside out and that's what this is all about, right? getting a passion for people and not just like a passion for policy or not just a passion, a passion for performance, right? But actually finding a love and a genuine care for, for human beings. And like, I have a love and genuine care for all the human beings on this call. Dana, Chris, Victoria, thank you so much for lending your voices, your experiences and your time. I'm, I'm so grateful, so blessed to know you and I hope our friendships don't stop here. I'm gonna be hitting y'all up, so don't even don't even trip on that. Can you guys say goodbye to everybody? Bye, y'all. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Much Absolutely. love to you. Absolutely. Uh, yes, website right. is so website much. is live for your discomfort.com. Uh, for anybody asking how they can support or donate, people have already been, and I'm like so grateful for that. But there's a donation option in the website. Let's get it popping. I'm posting the interview later on today. And uh, keep stepping into the room. It's not over. It's ongoing. And uh, I hope to see you next time. Part nine. Dang. Crazy. Anyway.
Bye, y'all. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Thank you for stepping into the room. I know that was a lot and, and it wasn't easy, but you made it. You're still here and we got this. But the conversation doesn't stop here. It's ongoing. So I expect to see you here next time for part nine, okay? For any and all updates, please follow at For Your Discomfort on Instagram or head over to our website, foryourdiscomfort.com to sign up for the next live Zoom call. I'll see you next time.